the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 144, covering the week of October 29th through November 2nd, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Please follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you want to look for those things, go to our webpage, Abbeville Institute, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. At the top of the page, you'll find all our social media buttons. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. And you'll get our Daily Dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. Also, download our app from your favorite app store, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play, and you will get the Abbeville Institute on the go. It also includes this podcast and all of our other media items, including our 200-plus lectures, plus you have a link to the website so you can get all of our articles daily through the application. It's free. So go on out there and get that. Also want to remind you that time is running out. If you're listening to this podcast, listen to this episode, and it's before November 5th. November 5th is the last day to sign up for our conference in Dallas, Texas on the revival of secession and state nullification. We are running out of space as well, and we want you to sign up. So go on out to our webpage at the middle of the page. You'll see a section that says you're invited. Click on that link and go on out and register. It will be a grand time. We have great speakers, a great environment. November 10th is the conference, so you're going to want to get on that as early as possible. If you're listening to this again before November 5th, November 5th is the cutoff date. So go on out there and register for the conference. Also remember that we exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you do like what we do, if you like the podcast, if you like the website, if you like our conferences, if you like all the stuff that we do, Please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. Uh, everything, anything you want to send, whether it's monthly, annually, it is greatly appreciated, and it does go to a good cause. So, time is running out to file all your or get all your finances in order for 2018's taxes. So, if you want to uh, take a little off of that and uh, help out the institute, you can by giving us a donation. Again, monthly or annually, we've got all kinds of options. Just go to the webpage again. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says support. Click on that. You'll have donation levels, and uh, you can donate that way. Also, we've got all of our embroidered material under that button that says support. You've got uh, a shop tab. Just click on that. You can buy all of your Abbeville Institute gear, t-shirts, polo shirts, hats, great stuff, high-quality stuff. The embroidery is fantastic. It does not wear out. It's not like a a screen-printed T-shirt, which will fade. This embroidered material lasts, so it is high-quality stuff, and you're going to want to get your Abbeville Institute gear that way. Proudly display it. I mean, this is a way you can help spread the word about the Institute, so go on out there and do that as well. Okay, well, let's talk about the material for this week. We had some interesting stuff, I think. It was all generally on perception of the South, um, and perception of the Southern tradition. I think that's something that we've been working on a lot. I mean, look, we relaunched the website in its current form in 2014. We've gained a lot more traction in the last four years. More and more people are finding us. Maybe you're listening to this podcast for the first time. 
but it's been a it's been a long uphill battle to get more and more people interested in the Southern tradition. But I think, based on what I'm seeing, it's working. Um, and of course, not all this is is because of us, but I think some of the ideas of the Southern tradition have filtered out into the general population. And not only that, um, the the basis of the Southern tradition, particularly the political part of it, uh, which we're going to be talking about in Dallas, is something that appeals to a broad spectrum of people. They just don't realize it at times. And of course, the progressives, because they're out of power, have rediscovered the Southern political tradition of nullification and secession, not just that, federalism, which now people would say, well, but the South didn't invent federalism. That was that was there. The South held on to that idea longer than anyone else. And when you look at the Jeffersonian tradition, it is certainly wrapped in that dedication to federalism. Jefferson, as we've talked about on this particular podcast, could have been a reformer. He was. He was a reformer within the state of Virginia, but it, it stopped there. Jefferson wasn't interested in reforming Massachusetts. Jefferson was interested in reforming Virginia. Jefferson was supremely dedicated to the principle of federalism. And that was the core basis of the United States Constitution, which if you say that Madison is the father of the Constitution, I would dispute that. But uh, that's the core basis of, of the Constitution. It's the core basis of the entire American political tradition. It's just the South held on to it longer. Now, this did not mean that New Englanders were not dedicated to federalism at one point. They were, but only when it suited their needs. Now, of course, they, they come back to that as, well, the South only did it when it supported their needs, too. Just look how they opposed nullification in the 1850s. Uh, this is true, but there's a, there's a caveat to that. The South was opposed to nullification because the North was trying to nullify something in the Constitution, and you can't do that. Uh, their dedication to federalism was pure, whereas Northern dedication to federalism was principally to hold on to their sectional beliefs. I mean, Northern nationalism was always sectionalism, and Northern sectionalism was always sectionalism, whereas I think you can say that Southern nationalism was always real nationalism. They wanted uh, what was best for the entire Union, not just one section. And you look at Calhoun's support, for example, for the Tariff of 1816, uh, that was designed to be something that would help the Union. It was not a high protective tariff, but it was a tariff that would uh, at least throw a bone back to New England because the War of 1812 had, some, had done some damage to the New England economy. So this was seen as a way to broadly support the Union. Whereas when you get to the Tariff of 1828 and the Tariff of 1832... That was a completely different situation. Those were not even veiled. They were overt attempts to enrich one group of people, northern industrialists, at the expense of everyone else, and particularly at the expense of the South. So um, I, I think that that's important to understand uh, when you look at the situation in the United States in the 19th century. And so the Southern political tradition of decentralization is something that's become in vogue again, uh, at times on both sides, but as Calhoun pointed out in the 1830s, it's only used when you're out of power. Once you're back in power, generally the establishment side of each party, the Democrats, Republicans, the right or left, 
uh, they tend to disregard it. And I think you're seeing that over and over again from most individuals in the Republican Party. And certainly you're going to see it if the Democrats are back in power at some point. But right now they're, they're barking about, we need to go back to have some type of state control of things. And the first piece of the week is uh, written by yours truly. It's entitled Progressive Neo-Confederates. Now remember, anytime someone on the right says, what we need to do is we need to have the states control these things. The first response is, Neo-Confederate. So it's important when the left starts saying these things, we need to call them out for being Neo-Confederates. But what this has done is proven that all of us Neo-Confederates have been right the whole time. You see... I believe that people that listen to this podcast or listen to my podcast are truly dedicated to the ideas of federalism. It doesn't really matter about R and D. It does, none of that matters. What they believe in is that we need a return to real federalism in America. And our conference, where we get, we've invited the Cal Exit people out there, shows that. What we're interested in is the idea of the Southern idea of federalism and talking about that. And what does this mean? Um, how could, how could this be something that would benefit the entire United States? Um, and so the Cal Exit people have realized it. They said, look, you know, it doesn't matter who's in Washington, D.C. This is about preserving a culture, preserving the culture of California against a wave of conservatives that we don't like. And so neo-Confederates have been proven right all along. And how do we know this? Because Hillary Clinton said it. And if the smartest woman in the world says it, well, then obviously it's true. In fact, she uh, tweeted out uh, a few days ago. She said, quote, A reality of a Supreme Court with a right-wing majority in the states are a new important front in that... The I'm sorry, let me, let me start over here. A reality of the Supreme Court with a right-wing majority is that the states are a new important front in protecting civil rights. A new important front? It's always been there especially the rights of the most vulnerable among us. Winning back the state legislatures is also important in this last election before the 2020 census. State legislatures draw congressional districts every 10 years based on those numbers, and Democratic legislative majorities can shut down gerrymandering that disenfranchises sick voters. State legislative races are also a great way to make an impact as an activist. The budgets and walk lists are smaller than those of congressional races, so you can move the needle with a few volunteer hours or donations. So here we have Hillary Clinton rediscovering the idea of federalism. The states have always been an important front in protecting civil rights. I could give you a laundry list of all the things that have happened in the states. If you just look at that issue, say, all right, we're going to focus on civil rights. The states were, were always leaders in this. Um, but uh, all kinds of other things came out of the progressive movement in the early 20th century in that they were interested in state power. For example, city zoning ordinances, direct democracy measures, prohibition, universal suffrage, universal health care. All of these things started at the state level. Of course, universal health care with Romney care in Massachusetts. And as I pointed out in my own podcast, minorities are always rep better represented in the states. If you look at, for example, just the number of African Americans in the Senate, I think it's what, three out of 100, 3%? 3%, if you look at that, just that issue based on race. Whereas if you go to the state of Alabama, for example, African Americans make up about 30% of the state legislature, 20, well, between 20 and 30%. That's about the exact number of the, of the population of African Americans in the state of Alabama. 
So where are African Americans better represented, in the state of Alabama or in the United States Senate? Well, I think the, the answer should be clear. If you're going to just vote based on race. So um, this is important, you know, and, and also on the right. You know, the, the states have been better at beating back cultural Marxism than any other entity, political entity in America. So, uh, and preserving their culture from that. So this is important when you look at this idea of federalism. And people are rediscovering this because it's, it's a valuable contribution to American life. And really, it's a, it's a, it is an, an idea of peace. That's the thing. You want to avoid a third civil war, quote-unquote, which people are talking about? Have real federalism. Have it to where people can live and let live, which was the entire idea from the beginning. The Constitution would not have been ratified without that idea. If anyone in the United States in 1788, North and South, believed that one section or one state would dominate another, they wouldn't have ratified the, the, the document. And so this idea of you know, progressive neo-Confederates, and that's what, it's just funny to say that, um, because the charge is often leveled the other way. But certainly when you start talking about this live and let live idea, live and let live, let California be California. Let California be as blue as it wants to be, but also let Alabama or Oklahoma or South Carolina, whatever state, be as red as it wants to be. Live and let live. And at that point, you would see a much more peaceful environment in Washington, D.C. This is part of the Southern tradition. And so it's, it's interesting to talk about these things know, why these things existed, why the founding generation considered this essential for good government, why they considered it essential for uh, the United States to work, which was a federal republic. And within that, of course, is our understanding of this concept of states' rights. States' rights, what does that actually mean? And so the piece that we ran on Tuesday by John Devaney is a review of another great Shotwell publishing book, From Founding Fathers to Fire Eaters, the book is uh, written by James Roche, and James Roche actually wrote many of these essays that appeared in this book for the Abbeville Institute over a, a couple of years. He's edited them, made them a little better, and then published in this book. And what he's done is traced um, the uh, lineage of quote-unquote states' rights from the founding generation up through the 1850s. 1860s. Um, and I think it's a valuable contribution to the literature on this particular topic. So he focuses on Jefferson and Madison, St. George Tucker, John Taylor of Caroline, Abel Upshur, John C. Calhoun, and Robert Barnwell Rhett. And this is a, a look at their public lives. Uh, and so their, and, and principally their positions on federalism. Again, the theme, federalism. I mean, you look at these individuals, particularly Tucker and Caroline and Upshur, I mean, and Calhoun. Now, Calhoun was not seen as a purist by uh, the old Republicans uh, because of his dabbling with nationalism. Uh, though, um, he, of course, would eventually come around to their positions on just about everything. 
Uh, but when you look at people like Tucker and, Car- and Car- uh, John Taylor of Caroline and, and uh, Abel Parker Upshur, I mean, these three individuals, I think, are so important uh, for understanding this Southern position on federalism and what it actually meant and where it came from. And of course, all three are from Virginia. What you're looking at in that group, only two of those individuals are not from Virginia, Calhoun and Rhett. And the Virginia political tradition, is, as, as Calhoun said, Virginia would just lead. If, P, if Virginia would just lead again. Now, Virginia's lost today. Uh, it can't really lead. It's, it's, it's been uh, because of the federal city. It's not really Virginia anymore and the northern part of the state. And uh, the, the other parts of the state don't have enough political clout to make Virginia, Virginia. But when you look at these individuals and what they said about the general government and how they viewed the general government, the powers of the general government, that is the Southern political tradition. Uh, and if you haven't ever read St. George Tucker, if you haven't read John Taylor of Carolina or Abel Upshur, this is a great introduction to those individuals. And the book is not expensive. It is a meaty book, though. I think it's around, uh, you know, close to 500 pages, I think, something around there. Um, a meaty book and one that's well worth your time to read and I think uh, Dr. Devaney has done a great job with this review and really bringing that out. Um, as he says, uh, Mr. Roche appropriately contextualizes these important Southern contributions in the political traditions and historical, historical experiences of the British Isles. He says, Mr. Roche has uncovered a living, breathing political tradition which possessed a remarkable diversity in reasoning, methodology, and even conclusions among its adherents. Imagine, some of the political thought Southern statesmen drew from can be traced to a time before African bondsmen or any European freeman or indentured, for that matter, set foot in America. Imagine that. Um, it's one thing I talk about in my American Constitutions class. you got to go back before that. I mean, the, polit- the, the Southern political tradition is older, is older than the South itself. Southerners held on to it longer. Than, any, than the other sections. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a continuation of this Western civilization, this political tradition, and more importantly, the English tradition um, of the rights of freemen. So uh, it's, this is well worth your time to go out and get this book. Again, Shotwell Press has hit another home run. They, they've published some really good stuff recently, and uh, this, is, this is something that you should pick up. And of course, Mr. Roche being a Abbeville contributor almost from the beginning. He was writing essays, I believe, back in 2014 for the website uh, when we first launched, and uh, he's been a valuable contributor to the to the institute in terms of uh, material for our for our free website. Remember, I mean, everything we do is free, so if you want to support us, uh, that does help keep the lights on because everything we do is free for the public. Uh, we don't hide; we're we're out there for people to see what we do. And we want that. We want people to see the, the valuable part of the Southern tradition. And here it is, right here, right in front of you, um, for uh, all to see in a great book from Shotwell Press. So go out there and pick that up, uh, From Founding Fathers to Fire Eaters. And it's a real discussion, the constitutional doctrine of states' rights in the Old South. And so well worth your time to get it. Now, uh, the pieces, the last pieces for the week have to do with the other side of the political spectrum, the other side in so many ways, um, because with the progressives, you expect them to not really care for the South, uh, for the old South, for Robert E. Lee or anything like that. You expect that. 
And so when they adopt uh, federalism and they start coming out and saying, you know, we, we want to uh, do things, uh, rekindle federalism, it's fun to poke fun at them. It's also fun to poke fun at the neoconservatives, though, because they're just as nasty when it comes to demonizing the Old South, demonizing the war for Southern independence and saying it was an unjust war, that the South was all wrong. Uh, but what's interesting about that, of course, is that, and of course, Lincoln is their guy. Lincoln is their guy. And I'm going to get an essay in just a minute on Lincoln. We always have to do something with Lincoln. But Lincoln was their guy. And the, the interesting thing about that, of course, is that they're shooting themselves in the foot. Because if Lincoln is your guy, then what you've done is essentially adopted the progressives as your standard bearers. If you believe that the Union was sacred, that could not be dissolved, if that's your position in 1860 and 61, if you believe the Southern cause was unjust, then you've just essentially destroyed your entire belief in the American in American principles, the spirit of 1776, the spirit of the founding generation, and yet this, gen this these group of people, these neoconservatives, tend to say, we love the founding generation. Those are our guys. They were doing the exact same thing that Southerners were doing in 1861, but yet they can't, they can't take that position because they say it's an unjust cause. But they're also undermining the idea that, um, they're, they're fueling, I should say, the leftist attack on Confederate monuments, Confederate symbols, Southern symbols, traditional American symbols, even George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they're fueling that attack. And, and finally, Victor Davis Hanson has woken up about this. He's woken up. And so we have a, a piece written by Jerry Saldier on Wednesday entitled, A Neoconservative Wakes Up. Victor Davis Hanson a man who has uh, just been very critical of anything that has to do with decentralization. He calls California looking to leave the Union. California goes neo-Confederate. I mean, this guy really hates the South. He doesn't like it at all. Um, and he comes out now in defense of Confederate memorials. Uh, and so he uses the French Revolution and um, the Soviet regime as evidence that what's going to happen here, and he says this, quote, the ultimate logic of today's statue smashers is a similar effort to war against the past and erase all the complexities, all the tragic lessons of history, and to replace it with some Mackian morality play. Where exactly will it stop? Uh as Sawyer says, though he has no great affection for the South, Hansen is a refreshing contrast to most conservative pundits insofar as he is intellectually honest enough to acknowledge the long-term implications of politically correct fanaticism. First they come for the Confederates, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Confederate. Then they come for everything else. Now, Hansen also says, you know, where is it going to stop? Is it going to stop with Shelby Foote? Is it going to stop with Sweet Home Alabama the night they drove old Dixie down? Are these things going to go away? Yeah, I mean, actually, Sweet Home Alabama is now considered by some people to be a racist, modern version of Dixie. I mean, this is the new Dixie, and it needs to go away. We did a whole conference on Southern music, and uh, those lectures will be going on the website uh, very shortly. Before Thanksgiving, they'll be up. And so um, we're, you'll, you'll hear this stuff, but this is a 
people have said this is a modern version of Dixie, and it's racist. You can't play Sweet Home Alabama. Sweet Home Alabama, uh, which actually has a line in it which is critical of George Wallace. But somehow it's racist. I mean, this is just how stupid people have gotten in America. Uh, somehow it's racist to play Sweet Home Alabama. And, and I mean, Southerners should be playing this thing everywhere. Even if you don't live in Alabama, you should be playing Sweet Home Alabama. Um, so, Hanson, as Sawyer says, is no Southern sympathizer. Uh, he thinks the South was fighting for a bad cause. Um, and he thinks that um, the South was wrong, but he doesn't want to take down Confederate statues. He doesn't want to erase Southern history. And one of, I think in his mind, part of it is that, well, he wants to show how, he wants to have a, a public image of the incorrect position of the South. Um, so when you look at and Sawyer points this out, he says, indeed, we might serve back to Hanson his own astute remarks about the collapse of liberty and the rise of the Leviathan state. He said this, quote, in general, free societies often become unfree with a whimper, not a bang, and usually due to self-righteous, pious movements that always claim the higher moral ground and justify their extreme mains by their self-sacrificing struggle for supposedly noble ends of social justice, equality, and fairness. And Sawyer concludes, those of us, of us familiar with Mel Bradford's work will no doubt appreciate finding that a staunch unionist concedes so much. Hopefully we may be excused for relishing the obvious irony. Right, because this is the position the North was taking. <laughs> and yet he's saying, now I'm against that stuff. See, these people just can't, they can't really connect the dots. They can't get it. And so that is problematic with people like Hanson. But at least you have somebody saying, hey, wait a second here. Um, we can't take this stuff down. You'll take that. You'll take that ultimately. And I and I know people that um, we've been very critical of Victor Davis Hansen at the Abbeville Institute. Uh, I know uh, some people who are work with him, and they say he's a very nice fella. Uh, he's a great colleague. Uh, he's just wrong on these issues. Uh, and one of the reasons why he's against you know California leaving is he's from California. He just doesn't really. He hopes his, his state doesn't go uh, left wing uh, as as it as it is. It already is going that way. But he just doesn't want it to leave the union. Um, but here, at least he's he's taking a position where he's being fairly intellectually honest. At least at this point, saying, "Well, I mean, we can't. Th this is this is going to be another Soviet French revolutionary style purge of all things." in Western civilization. If we start with Confederate monuments, it's going, to, it's going to filter out into other things. We're going to have to take down the Jefferson Memorial. We'll have to take down the Washington Monument. We'll have to contextualize. There'll have to be big plaques in front of the Washington Monument. Yes, but Washington owns slaves. I mean, where do you stop with these things? That's a really great, great question. I think people are starting to ask these questions, and they're pushing back against some of this stuff, though I don't think forcefully enough. Now, uh, the piece on... On Thursday, in contrast to that, is McChrystal versus Lee. And it was written by Paul Yarbrough, and it's about Stanley McChrystal, um, who was, of course, the leader of the war in Afghanistan. Um, but he he's written a book entitled Leaders, Myth, and Reality, where he uh, bashed Robert E. Lee. He went on to the, the uh, to CBS this morning and... Um, he said that he had taken down a picture of Lee. Um, he thought Lee was a great soldier, and then he took the picture down. Why? 
because he was trying to tear down the country that George Washington helped build. And plus, his wife said he didn't, she didn't like the picture, so he had to take the picture down. <laughs> uh, but th- this is what he said. This is what he said. Uh, so he has people like, uh, you know, great leaders like Coco Chanel. Yeah, Coco Chanel. Obviously, when I think of leadership, I think of Coco Chanel. I mean, that, that's the first person that comes to mind uh, when I think leadership. I mean, um, this, is, this, is impo- this is very important to think of Coco Chanel. But, of course, Paul gets into some great stuff here. If you haven't read any Paul's uh, fiction, he does a very good job. We've published some of his short stories on, on the website. I'm um, in the middle of reading his book, Thy Brother's Blood, which is it's a, it's a interesting read. It's a Louisiana story, and his wife was from Louisiana, and so he's written this novel. I'll probably review it here for the website in the future, but um, he's, he's a, a fun fiction writer. But he does this very good stuff, too, this, these uh, op-ed-style uh, nonfiction pieces where he talks about the Southern tradition. And his books are heavily saturated with that, too. Um, so it's, it's a nice change. Um, but he gets into the fact that, you know, when Crystal says that, McChrystal says that he was, uh, Lee was trying to destroy the United States of George Washington, further, he can't be further from the truth. Um, he, he was not trying to destroy the United States of George Washington. He was trying to preserve it. <laughs> trying to preserve it. Now, we could, we could talk about Washington and what he thought of secession, and, but of course the South understood that their cause was tied into this idea of Washington's Union. And so um, that's nothing new. Uh, and I think that that's very important to understand. And so I think Yarbrough does a very good job of bringing that out. And of course, at the same time, uh, taking McChrystal to task for saying that Lee wasn't a good leader, Lee's not important anymore. Uh, this is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Um, so I would highly recommend this piece. And then on Friday, we published a piece, and I'm, I'm running up against time here, by Jack Kerwick. This was published a few years back. Um, and the title is, Was Lincoln a Conservative? And he's responding to a piece by Rich Lowry in the National Review, um, where he says that, uh, you know, Lowry where Lowry says that, uh, you know, these Lincoln haters, people like Tom DiLorenzo and libertarians and other people, and of course the the Institute would be in that group as well. Uh, Lincoln haters, I mean, it's, uh, that, that's, a, that's a loaded term, were critical of Lincoln. And of course, DiLorenzo uh, is uh, called fringe. Uh, Lowry will throw things out like, apparently these people hate federal power more than they abhor slavery. I mean, these are these are just um, these are unhinged Lincoln-hating polemics. These are these are charged terms that are anti-intellectual. And and what Jack does here is take down the the nature of these terms in his position. He he essentially throws Lowry under the bus for not knowing logic. I mean, Lowry is illogical in his attacks. This is almost hysterical. Not funny, but hysterical and hysteria to look at these uh, people in this way. Um, what he's doing here, this is an ad hominem attack. He's trying to undermine the character of his opponents, not the substance or form of their reasoning, as, as uh, Kerwick says. Uh, and when you do that, you're, you're, as he says, you're depriving yourself of the higher ground. It has little to do with history, Kerwick says, and everything to do with contemporary politics. Um, and so, 
whether Lincoln was right or wrong, but when you when you attack the opponents as saying these people are just these people are just unhinged, they're fringe, whatever it is, you're creating a position, a straw man, and then you take down that straw man. And this is this is failing logic 101 all over the place. And of course, we could talk about whether Lincoln was really a conservative. Was he really a conservative? Is is just is uh, pursuing a war with the South the conservative position, or was it something else? Was siding with the much more reform-minded Republican Party in so many different ways? It wasn't just abolition. I mean, these people. If you look at the core of that reform element, they wanted to reform everything. It was, uh, and and uh, Dabney pointed this out. They are they are so did. Uh, virtually every Southern theologian at the time, uh, Thornwell. I mean, these people want not just to remake one part of the South, which they call evil. They want to remake the entire United States and their image, and that would be every, virtually every form of of, of reform you can think of. Uh, this is where I think Saint Elmo, which is uh, Augusta Jane Evans, uh, her fabulous book, which is it's hard to get through. But she gets into this stuff. I mean, this thing was written in 1866, and she's out there criticizing every aspect of reform that you could imagine. Communism, uh, whether it's feminism. Um, I mean, she is, she is on these things in a way that you're, you would be surprised that this book, that book was written in 1866, but Southerners were astute. They understood what was going on here. It's not going to stop with this one thing. They're, they're going to they're going to recreate the United States, and that's essentially what happened. So was Lincoln really a conservative, or was he leading a vanguard, as the Sawyer piece pointed out, of something else? So this is an interesting conversation to have. Uh, who are the real conservatives? Are they the uh, are they the founding fathers and fire eaters, or is it as Roche would say, or is it Lincoln? Um, it's an interesting debate. A very interesting debate, and um, one that gets into history and how you perceive history and how you perceive these individuals. And so we talk about this stuff a lot, of course, at the Institute. You know, And I think that this piece is a nice example of that. This was actually published at uh, Jack's uh, own personal website, um, beliefnet.com. Uh, so if you haven't gone out there and read that, he publishes a lot of stuff there. It's very good. He's written a lot of, he's, he's had some books that are collections of his essays, which are, which are good as well. So Jack uh, actually has a doctorate in philosophy from Temple University, and so um, he's a very good, uh, very good writer. Writes all the time for all kinds of publications, but um, this particular piece, because he goes after Ra- Lowry, and um, he, he concludes with the piece with, but maybe that's the point. Maybe today's conservatives do need Lincoln, for given their obsession with fundamentally transforming the Islamic world into a bastion of democracy and their own country into the melting pot of the universe. Today's conservatives care as much about preserving the decentralized character of American government as did Lincoln. As a result, they're about as conservative as him as well. So you're looking at this Bradford uh, split in what Lincoln was, and of course we could talk about that whole position, you know, where where Southerners stood on Lincoln uh, for decades. Uh, But I love this piece. I, I think it ties nicely into the piece, the Yarborough piece and the Sawyer piece, and even... Now, the pieces earlier in the week, you know, the piece by Devaney and myself about this Southern political tradition. What is it? What does it mean? What does it mean to be conservative or uh, not conservative? 
what is the American conservative tradition? Is it federalism? Is that the Southern political tradition? I mean, these are all interesting questions that we try to, to dig out of uh, the Southern, Southern history, the Southern experience, and the Southern tradition. And I hope that you get that from our material. Until next time, good day. Good day.